Hi everyone, it's Kevin. So this is the second episode in our four-part series looking at carbon dioxide removal. Can we take CO2 just back out of the air? And so if you haven't listened to the first episode yet, I really recommend that you go back and listen to that one first. Otherwise, this will make much less sense to you. And as I mentioned before the first episode, there'll be a few exciting updates that we'll be sharing with you at the end of the series. So with that in mind, here's episode number two. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, hello. <laughs> Welcome back, Tony. It's nice to see you again. Yeah. Okay, so remember last episode, we were talking about taking carbon dioxide out of the air. Can we, is there a way that we can take all of this carbon dioxide that we put into the atmosphere that's causing our problems with climate change, can we take it back out, right? And we, we met Klaus Lackner, our expert in Arizona, who's been working on the subject for, for many, many years, uh, close to two decades. So here's the idea how to scale this up. So the idea is like a sail, it hangs sort of in the wind, right? And it now loads up with CO2. And now in a dry climate, you have an enormous power to collect CO2 without spending energy. And, and what we found is that we, we can take it out technically. It is possible. Klaus and his partner Alan have found an energy efficient way of taking carbon dioxide out of the air. But where we left off was that even though the engineering is mostly there, there's still other challenges in the way, which are stopping carbon capture from playing a big part of the solution. And what are those? Well, one of the challenges is that negative emissions are actually surprisingly controversial. And I say surprisingly because if CO2 in the air is what is causing us problems, why would anyone object to us taking it back out? In what sense is it controversial? Surely everyone on the planet should want this to happen. Right. Well, I mean, that's what I figured. But maybe the most controversial thing about negative emissions is that even though they hardly even exist yet, we're kind of banking on them working. So you mean like we've, we've planned on it already working out? In a way, yeah. So in order to explain why that's the case, we need to talk about something called the carbon budget. Here's Tim Flannery again. He's the Australian scientist from last episode who is the chief counselor of the Climate Council. Look, the carbon budget is all about the amount of greenhouse gas you can put into the atmosphere before you suffer a particular consequence. It's a bit like having our salary. We get a certain amount of money we can spend. And the more you spend now, the less you can spend later. That second voice is Kevin Anderson. He's a climate scientist and the deputy director of the Tyndall Center for Climate Change Research. So carbon dioxide, as we all know by now, warms the planet. And the carbon budget is the amount of new carbon dioxide we can admit to the atmosphere, or spend if you like, before we commit ourselves to a certain amount of warming in the climate. And for each degree of warming on Earth, we know roughly how much carbon dioxide that is. Um, so what we have for a given temperature rise, like for instance a 2 degrees C rise in temperature, we know there's a certain amount of carbon dioxide we can put into the atmosphere, a carbon budget. We know how many billions of tons that is. Now there's a bit of uncertainty there, but we know we have a good enough range to inform policy as to what we can do. So we know roughly how much carbon dioxide we can release and still meet the world's climate goals. But that's not all we know. We also know when we burn a litre of fuel or burn a tonne of coal or whatever it might be, how much carbon dioxide comes out of that activity. So because we know how much CO2 gets released each time we use a certain amount of coal, oil or gas, and we know how much carbon dioxide we can safely put into the atmosphere. We know therefore how much fossil fuels we can burn and stay within that carbon budget. And the more that we burn now, the less we can burn tomorrow. 
I like that. Uh, I am a keen budgeter, and so putting things in monetary terms, that, that drives it home <laughs> for me. Because <laughs> when it hits your pocket, that's when it gets real. That, that's true. So with the agreements in Paris a few years ago, two degrees of warming was agreed on as the red line that the world is trying to avoid on climate change. And so the carbon budget reflects that. So the current carbon budget is framed around trying to stay below two degrees of warming. So all of the CO2 that we put in that'll take us above two degrees of warming is outside the budget. And you can actually look up how much CO2 we have in our carbon budget for that red line. So for staying under two degrees of warming, there's still about 800 billion tons of CO2 that we can release, which, um, which sounds like a big number. Um, but that only represents about 20% of the budget we had when we started at the beginning of the century. So it's a tiny little bit that we have left to last a very long period of time. So we're spending our budget far faster uh, than we should be. And far faster than we should be is a huge understatement. Here's Kevin Anderson. We're burning through it at such a rapid rate. At current emission rates, we will use through all of the carbon budget in about 20 years. 20 years, that's all we have. Jeez, 20 years. That, so like you and I are at the age where we could reasonably have a child and nobody would raise an eyebrow. And I might say we've been at that age for a few <laughs> few years now. Yeah, but if, you know, like if, if I were to have a child right now and, the, you know, by the time the child went to university, um, it would be up, the budget would be up. That's, that's serious. Exactly. So we have very little time. So let's just put that to one side for now. Now, the UN's main climate change body is something called the International Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC for short. And it creates scenarios for what the world's future carbon emissions might look like. So will our emissions keep climbing like they have been for decades? Will they level off and start dropping soon? And if so, by how much will it drop each year? And it takes all those possible scenarios for the pathways our future emissions might take and it connects each one with what it would mean for the average temperature rise on Earth. That's a really gloomy job. Like your job is to create little black doors where you sort of pry open and see what would happen if we went down that path. Yeah, or like the, the world's scariest advent calendar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for the last major IPCC report, they created more than a thousand of these scenarios. Of these, only 116 saw staying within the carbon budget we would need to meet the two-degree red line. Um, so all the rest of the doors would have us going down a path that the world has agreed would lead to us being collectively screwed. Almost 90%. Almost 90%. And that's not the only bad news. Because there's something shocking when you look at all these two-degree scenarios together. They almost all involve negative emissions. Virtually every single two degrees C scenario that was submitted to the IPCC, the last Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, virtually every single scenario includes very large quantities of these negative emission technologies. So in other words, almost all of the scenarios where we don't go deep into overdraft on the climate assume that at some point in the next few decades, we'll have come up with a way to take billions of tons of carbon dioxide out of the air each year. And... Uh why would they predict that if the stuff doesn't exist yet? Well, the problem is that we've simply put off the task of reducing our emissions for so long now that in order to have a good chance of staying within our carbon budget for two degrees without negative emissions, we'd have to transition off of fossil fuels so fast that it seems like it would be almost impossible. 
would have to get to zero emissions in about 30 years from now, which means in a little more than a couple decades would have to be burning no coal, no oil, no gas. And looking at our track record, as well as just how much the world still relies on fossil fuels, it's hard to imagine we could move that fast. And it's that reality that has caused many leading climate scientists to admit that we're left with no other choice but to rely on negative emissions. Here's Tim Flannery again. Look, the first thing I'd say is I wish we didn't have to do it. You know, if we'd acted after Copenhagen... Which was a major UN climate meeting that took place in 2009. Maybe we could have done it just by reducing emissions, but we've put 250 gigatons or more of CO2 equivalent in the atmosphere since then. So the problem's gone so big that we have no choice now but to take CO2 out of the air at the same time we reduce emissions very steeply. And here's Glenn Peters, a climate scientist in Norway at Cicero. Where we are standing today, I think it's quite unlikely that we would get to two degrees without carbon dioxide removal. So the magnitude of the task is just immense. It's important for people to understand this because now there is no alternative. We have to use something like these technologies if we hope to stay below two degrees. It's the only pathway forward. So take the Paris Agreement again. In it, governments agree that we should work hard to limit climate change to 1.5 degrees and definitely stay below 2 degrees of warming. But within that same agreement, those same governments made promises for reducing their emissions that, even if they were successfully kept, would mean we would see somewhere between 3 and 4 degrees of warming by the end of the century. So you see this, this difference between the rhetoric and the, and the reality, the reality of climate change and where we need to be, and the commitments that those same governments made within the Paris Agreement. And this is a big challenge. In a, an article recently, we called this a, a moral hazard. That's Glenn Peters again. And we're sort of following a pathway where we would require those technologies, but we don't really have those technologies available or a clear pathway on how we can get those technologies to happen. And some people, as you might imagine, think this situation is kind of nuts. If we said we can't get to two degrees centigrade without magic, that would sound a strange thing to say. But in effect, according to Kevin, by relying on negative emissions to bail us out in the future, we're doing just that. We're relying on magic. We're putting our future in the hands of technologies that don't yet fully exist. This is, this is delusional. They do not exist. They may never exist at scale. And to have any reliance on them is incredibly dangerous. Kevin's worry is that by including negative emissions in all of these projections, we're convincing ourselves that we don't need to cut our use of fossil fuels as urgently as we really need to. And Kevin says that this is a risk. Because if they fail, that means we will have not mitigated, we will not reduced our emissions as rapidly as we should do. And therefore, the future generations will see even more rapid temperature rises. So what does our inventor, Klaus, think of this? I mean, like he's, he's got a reasonable idea of a solution. I mean, yeah, Klaus is fully aware of the criticisms of negative emissions. But Klaus thinks that negative emissions are unfairly getting the blame for us not getting our act together sooner at reducing our use of fossil fuels. It's not that negative emissions got in the way and prevented you from doing the right thing. We couldn't figure out how to do the right thing for the last 30 years, even though negative emissions weren't on the table. Which is true. For decades, climate scientists have been telling us we need to reduce our emissions. And as a global community of countries, governments have been making promises to that effect all the way back to the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. And that was way before negative emissions were being seriously talked about. And yet the world's emissions have gone steadily up ever since. In fact, they, they even went up last year. 
Yeah, and I would say even like on a micro level, personally, I don't continue in my planet-destroying behavior because I believe something's going to happen in the future that fixes this. You know, there are other bad reasons for me doing for, for me doing the selfish things I do, you know? Yeah, like what? Like it's just more efficient. It's more efficient to fly to Canada than uh, paddle there in a boat. That, <laughs> that is true. Yeah. And Klaus is in agreement with you. I mean, here we are and we're... We're still doing all the terrible behaviors that we should know better about. We're flying, we're eating meat and buying things that we don't necessarily need. And I don't think it's the negative emissions which induced us to do that. I'm arguing we, we better figure out how to turn the ship around. Right? And I'm in agreement if you tell me that we could still get hurt. But stepping on the brakes <laughs> is a good thing to do, even if you are not sure that the brakes work. Klaus, by the way, agrees that air capture wouldn't solve all of our problems. Air capture is not a get-out-of-jail-free card, because if you think it's now time to do it, in a way it's too late. And so Klaus's point is that even if we already had a gigantic system of air capture machines ready to go, and that we could just press the on switch on, it would still take us decades to lower the concentrations in the atmosphere of CO2 by a reasonable amount. And in the meantime, would still be dealing with the effects of those runaway temperatures. So he's not arguing that we can just feel free to let carbon dioxide build up in the atmosphere with the hope that someday we can take it back out. Quite the contrary. I would argue that if you exceed reasonable limits, what will happen is you have irreversible damages. Once you melted glaciers, they will not unmelt again because you managed to get the CO2 back down. But the damages will be even larger if you get to these high levels and then don't have a way of coming back. And so you need the negative emissions to come back, but don't think that the negative emissions bail you out from damages you already created. Which is all the more reason not to delay. And I agree that we shouldn't think we have it in the bag. We should work very hard to get this technology in the bag and then apply it. And we shouldn't say, well, we'll apply it sometime in the future. That, that's too late. <laughs> the future is now. So I guess the summary of that is that we have this glimmer of hope in the negative emissions. And I suppose it comes down to not wanting to rely on that but needing to put our energy into making it a reality, making it possible, because uh, it does seem to be our last and best hope. Yeah, exactly. So Klaus and Alan have now spent almost two decades playing around with methods and materials for capturing CO2, including with the special resin material that we talked about last episode. Now, the, the obvious next step for them would be to build a prototype to create you know, a fully working, full-size machine that would use their process and this material to capture CO2 and do it, you know, not in the lab, but do it out in the field. And this is a point that they've been at for a while now. We are at a point where we could move from here is how, we, how it looks in the lab to a serious prototype. I have felt like that for the last eight years. And building a, a prototype is something that they've thought a lot about. So you would like to build a full prototype. So what, what would that look like? Do you have an image in your mind what a working prototype would actually look like? We have 
Several. Several, yes. <laughs> uh, my favorite design is still, think of these things as slightly oversized mattresses. That is the carbon dioxide glue, this resin absorbing material would be in the shape of mattresses. And I would like to hang them on a track. And so they run around like a chair on a ski lift, right? And then somewhere is a shed where these mattresses get stacked behind each other. And that's where we regenerate. So in the shed is where the resin sheets would be made wet and the carbon dioxide they captured would be pushed back off and concentrated. But on a normal operation, they hang like close on a clothesline and absorb CO2 and then come like in a like in a dry cleaner where they go around and, <laughs> and come back around. Or a tie rack or something. Yeah, exactly. And they come back and then get regenerated. So it's like a fancy ski lift up, up in the mountains and things just keep moving around and the simple addition of water changes the chemistry so that they can load off the CO2 and it seems, it seems quite efficient. Yeah, so he has a vision in mind, but that being said, he fully expects the designs will change. I am absolutely convinced that the units we will build will in retrospect look like the horseless carriages which were the first cars, right? Because we haven't really sorted out how to do this optimally. Which makes sense, right? Like any new technology, you learn and get better over time. The first attempts in really any new invention are usually in retrospect quite clumsy. They're more expensive and less efficient than the designs that come later. Yeah, I think that's a really humble view. Uh, like, don't come out of the gate cocky. Realize that it's probably going to be clunky. <laughs> yeah. You'll get better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's not like we made the best smartphone or computer or car or airplane just off the bat. No. And and therein lies the problem. The, this is the crazy thing. They would love to start building a prototype and start learning, but they can't get the money. Um, really? I mean... You'd think it, people would be lining up to finance this as this is the future. This, if, this, if they get this right, then they could, you know, they have a blank check. They could pretty much make money till the cows come home. Right. I mean, that's what I figure too. But they can't. They can't get the, the proper funding. And it's not for a lack of trying. When we tried to get money into it, we argued it takes $20 million. For a $20 million engineering effort, can build you a few container-sized units, which could collect a ton a day. And, and they, do you have that money yet? No, but if that, that's the scale it takes. And, and I would argue, on the grand scale of things, we have spent a lot more money on things than that. As Wally Broker liked to point out, they are baseball players who make more money than that. <laughs> I know, I was actually just thinking about that, the kinds of money that we spend on a new stadium for the Soccer World Cup or individual sports players, it's really ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, one stadium can be up to a billion dollars, right? Yeah, and this is this is not a vanity project. This is <laughs> the survival of the species. Yeah, exactly. And this is honestly what stuck with me more than anything else during my time with Klaus, the fact that he can't get the money. Because, like, you know, here we are looking at the UN's own numbers. We're essentially counting on something like this working. We're counting on negative emissions to bail us out. And yet the people actually working on it can't get the money to continue their efforts to build a prototype. And he's been stuck in this situation for almost a decade. And it's been holding them back from, from learning. You only learn by doing if you are doing. Right? You can't learn by doing without doing. And right now we're pretty much without doing because the budgets to do this 
are to tinker on the edges. They are not big enough to seriously do it. Now, there are other people and startups working on different methods for direct air capture besides Klaus. There's uh, Climeworks in Switzerland. There's Carbon Engineering in Canada. But by and large, they're basically in the same situation. And there are some other methods where people are building small prototypes, but I think they are in the same situation. They're, <laughs> they're stringing it along on a shoestring. So I had come to Arizona originally thinking that this was a story all about engineering, right? That was my question was, can we build a machine that would take CO2 out of the air? But through talking to Klaus, I realized that this isn't really a story of science at all. This was a story about politics and finance. So I, I understand the frustration, but it, it does seem a little strange that no one is willing to do something. You know, like, what about the Soruses of the world who are willing to put money in all sorts of philanthropic endeavors? There isn't a little leftover for this? Well, to be fair, Bill Gates is an investor in either one or two of the small startups that exist, like Carbon Engineering in Canada. He is an investor in this company. But still, in the grand scheme of things, very little money is going into this area. And why not? Like, did your reporting help illuminate why? Well, part of the answer lies in what we were saying before, the controversy surrounding negative emissions in some quarters. Because we are caught in the middle, right? On the one side, the people who make the CO2 tell you climate change is a hoax. And on the other side, people say, but that's a moral hazard and it's an excuse to keep doing what we are doing. You get stuck in the middle in between these two two fronts, you can very easily run out of money, right? And I think a little bit that's where we are right now. I could see the moral hazard argument by environmentalists, but I'm still not quite seeing why they would think it's so bad that we shouldn't even start. Well, I mean, I, I find it curious myself, but a lot of environmentalists see carbon capture as kind of an almost sneaky way to prolong the life of the fossil fuel industry, an industry that they would like to see put out of business. And others see it as a distraction from investing in renewable technologies. So Greenpeace, for example, released a report saying, quote, that technology that the fossil fuel industry hoped would become their savior has not taken off and will not. So it sounds like there are camps and people are invested in being right. Yeah. And I mean, this is something other commentators have noticed too, uh, that negative emissions are like the lonely middle child of climate change solutions. They're caught in between. That's the problem we have here, is that these different approaches for addressing the climate problem see each other as competitors. And there's a large industry out there, the renewables industry, that doesn't want any chance of carbon capture and sequestration succeeding. That's Miles Allen, a climate scientist at Oxford University. And he thinks that some green groups need to rethink their positions. These people go to the conferences that I go to, they hear the talks that we're going to need this. I don't know how they sleep at night lobbying against CCS. CCS being carbon capture and storage. They know that if this generation doesn't need it, the next generation will. And this is the big thing we're missing out on at the moment. We're, doing, we're making quite a lot of progress on reducing the cost of renewables, but we're making essentially no progress at all on the path to large-scale deployment of CCS. And that's the problem we need to address. It looks like we've landed in an either-or debate, whereas both are viable. You know, we, we could switch to renewables and have some kind of carbon capturing system. That makes total sense. Yeah, I mean, not only could we have both, it seems like 
according to the numbers, we, we need both anyways. And there's no reason why they have to be enemies. But so the controversy is like one big reason why they can't make money. But arguably the bigger reason why Klaus and Alan can't raise money is that there's just no market for such a machine yet or for negative emissions generally. Um, what do you mean your market? You mean like there's there's no category on Amazon for a carbon capturing machine? <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. Because I mean, right now, no one will pay you to take carbon dioxide out of the air and just clean it up, just dispose of it, right? So in the vast majority of the world, you can dig up fossil fuels, burn them for whatever purpose you like, and dump all the CO2 that you just made into the atmosphere and pay absolutely nothing. So why as a company would you pay to clean up the CO2 that you emitted when your competitors won't? And maybe even a, a more key point is that why as an investor would you invest money in a company that's trying to produce a machine that has no foreseeable way to make money? Mm. And according to Miles Allen, it's this, not technology, which is the biggest challenge facing air capture. Yes, it's finance and of course the means to generate that finance. At the moment, fossil fuel companies are, as in, as in many other spheres, privatizing profits and socializing costs. So uh, when a fossil company digs up coal or oil and sells it, they make a private profit. But the cost of dealing with the climate change that results from the CO2 that's generated by that product is, at the moment, assumed will be dealt with by the public purse. That's a problem. You can't have an industry of this scale that's operating that way, assuming that the government would clean up the mess after it, running on indefinitely. So there's just no big financial incentive to clean carbon dioxide out of the air. So to get around this out of necessity, Klaus and other companies working in this field have looked to smaller applications, these like niche markets, because there are some industries that buy CO2. Really? There are, there are people who pay for CO2? Yeah, for example, when you buy cola from the supermarket or other fizzy drinks, those drink companies actually need to buy the CO2 from someone to make those drinks fizz. And some greenhouses also buy CO2 because a lot of fruits and vegetables actually grow better in air that has more CO2 in it. This is actually what one leading company in direct air capture called Climeworks in Zurich, Switzerland is doing. They're capturing CO2 from the air at a small installation and selling it to a greenhouse on site. And it's worth mentioning here that they're actually losing money by doing this. They're doing this at a loss, but at least it gives them a chance to develop the technology. So while capturing CO2 to feed plants in a greenhouse or making fizzy drinks isn't the end goal. You do it because you, you really have the bigger picture in mind. But the problem is if all you wanted is CO2 and you didn't care about climate change or negative emissions, then as Klaus points out, I can give you a lump of coal and convert it into CO2 much more cheaply than I can do anything else. Not to mention that pumping it into a greenhouse or into fizzy drinks isn't actually carbon negative because once you open the soft drink, it just goes back out into the air. So this always feels a little bit like you're pretending to do something because you really have in mind this bigger application. So. It sounds like our key challenge is to find a, an incentive. We need to build a system in which it is profitable to capture carbon and sell it. Yeah, exactly. So it's a problem of money, but it's also a problem of politics. Because ultimately, if we're going to solve the money problem and get negative emissions up and running, we're going to need government regulation. We're going to need some sort of policy or incentive that would create a market for people like Klaus and Climeworks to collect carbon dioxide back out of the air 
and not just to make fizzy drinks, but to help solve the world's climate problem. And maybe a, a big part of the reason we don't already have the type of regulations that would do this, that would create a, a market and truly support negative emissions, is that at least according to Klaus, we're thinking of our problem with carbon dioxide all wrong. How should we be thinking about it then? Well, we always hear about reducing our carbon emissions, right? Reduce, reduce, reduce. Or at official UN events, they would call reducing our emissions mitigation. Insulated your house? Good, you've reduced your emissions. Installed a bunch of solar panels and closed down a coal plant? You've done even better. This is, of course, necessary. We need to reduce our emissions and drastically. But Klaus argues that we need to think about the carbon dioxide we emit as not only something we should make less of, but as a mess, something that we need to clean up. So he thinks we should treat it like waste. What bothers me is not so much that we do things which could emit, but that we don't do anything about it. We, we are in a, in a scenario where we say it's a mitigation issue. Right? We, we would like to reduce emissions. Uh, I think it's a waste management problem. So what would the reframing of this from an emissions issue to a waste management issue achieve? Does it change our behavior once we think of it that way? It does. I mean, an example Klaus likes to use is to think of it in terms of household waste. So, you know, you and I, we create household waste every day, just the normal types of waste, packaging, sewage. Banana peels in which we slip for comic relief. <laughs> exactly. But say for some reason that no garbage truck comes around to collect it. Maybe they're on strike or all the garbage trucks have broken down. And so to get rid of your garbage, you just dump it outside on the street. Assume I were to dump my garbage or my sewage in the street. Right? You wouldn't take it for an answer if I came back to you and said, I really worked on it hard. I, I thought about it hard and I got much more efficient than I was last year. And my garbage dumping or my sewage effluent is actually 20% less than last year. Aren't you proud of me? Right? You, you wouldn't take that for an answer. You would say, get rid of this stuff right now. Right? And yet with carbon dioxide, we are fine with exactly that answer that we'll make less of it next year. And in the meantime, all of that waste CO2 is heating the climate, melting the ice caps, and, and causing damage. So that's why I like the waste management analogy, because there too, you're saying it's going to stink for the next five years, and you, you better take it away right now. But of course, instead of rotting, stinking household waste, we're dealing with an invisible, odorless gas. So even though the long-term effects of carbon dioxide are arguably much worse than regular garbage or that banana peel that we slipped on, it's harder to psychologically make the link, which is something that I asked Klaus about. Do you think part of the problem is just that carbon dioxide is this, you know, odorless, colorless gas that we don't actually see? Of course. If you, most people are shocked if I tell them that if you burn a gallon of gasoline, you have 20 pounds of CO2. Or burning one liter of gasoline produces 2.3 kilograms of CO2 for the metric among us. Occasionally, I get actually somebody saying, how can that be? The gallon of gasoline wasn't 20 pounds, right? And the answer is most of that weight is the oxygen you picked up while you drove, right? It wasn't in the gasoline to begin with. So people are shocked when they hear these numbers and say, I, if this were sand falling out of your tailpipe, we would have solved that problem a long time ago. So framing it as waste sort of shows that we have this unacceptable thing that's being emitted into the air and reducing the amount of it doesn't make it any less unacceptable. Yeah, but maybe in a way it is acceptable, right? It's acceptable that we create it, but it's not acceptable that we don't clean it up. Once you have a waste management approach, there's another thing subtle about it. People do like to make less garbage. 
but it's understood that you will make garbage. When it comes to sewage, it's even more extreme. There's no practical way for you not to make sewage. And it's understood that this is okay, right? And that's where where your moral hazard is in some ways true, right? Once you accept that, then you will say, okay, we, we will never get to zero in consumption, but we will get to zero in emissions. And so Klaus has a fairly simple sounding solution for all this. And that would be? Well, if it's a mess that we need to clean up, why don't we just get the producers of fossil fuels and those who create carbon emissions to clean their mess up? And we say, if you extract a ton of carbon out of the ground, another one has to be put away, right? If you dump a ton of CO2 into the atmosphere, you are responsible to take a ton of CO2 back out. Oof, what would that look like? How are we, we going to make that happen? So say you're British Petroleum or Shell Oil then the only way that you would be allowed to dig up and sell coal, oil, or gas is capturing out of the atmosphere the same amount of CO2 that would be created by burning those fossil fuels. This is something that Miles Allen, our climate scientist from Oxford University, also agrees with. We've argued for a long time that the only way carbon capture and sequestration is ever going to take off at the necessary scale is if it's essentially required by government as a condition of people continuing to use and sell fossil fuels. That way, instead of it being left to the public at large to clean up the mess and deal with the consequences of all this carbon dioxide waste? It would be the wealthiest industry in the world being required to sort out its own problem. They've got the know-how to do this, they've got the finances to do this, the only thing they don't have is the incentive to do this. And that's something that this kind of regulatory regime would achieve. I mean, does it sound good to you? To me, it seems marvelously simple. It does. Uh, if we can get some kind of teeth, uh, you know, some kind of mechanism for making sure that they actually comply. Yes. How, how do we know that they'll actually go ahead and, and do this? Well, of course, this would have to be very carefully monitored to make sure that the CO2 was actually being taken out of the air and in an environmentally responsible way. So obviously you'd have to have quite a strong role for government in this, in policing the system to make sure people really were disposing of the carbon dioxide they said they were disposing of. But otherwise you could essentially let the industry get on with it. And then the market, by the way, will figure things out. That's the way to do it. You make it a licensing condition for digging up fossil fuels and the industry will find cheap ways of getting rid of CO2. As soon as you force people to want to find the cheapest way, they will find it. Exactly. But that's all hopefully in the future, this type of regulation. But right now, the technology is stuck in a catch-22. Carbon capture and sequestration hasn't yet been able to prove itself as something that can actually play a practical part of the solution to climate change. But it hasn't been able to do this because there's no regulation yet that would give the technology the financial driver it needs to develop beyond small experimental scales. And no such regulation exists yet, at least partly because the industry hasn't been able to show that carbon capture and sequestration is actually an effective and affordable solution to climate change. So it sounds like it's sort of stuck. You know, it's trying to get to a higher level of operation, but can't get out of this really small scale uh, production level. Yeah, it's at the scale of, you know, worldwide, one or 2,000 tons a year. It's, it's really nothing. And at the scale that it does exist, direct air capture remains like all early technologies before it, really, really expensive. And that matter of cost is one of the key issues here. Okay, so how much would it cost to really do properly? 
Well, most of the early estimates for how much direct air capture will cost put it really high. So a 2011 comprehensive review by the American Physical Society estimated the cost would be above $600 a ton. And Climeworks, one of the early companies in this area that we mentioned before, is currently capturing carbon dioxide at a small plant in Switzerland for between $600 and $800 a ton. Um, so $600 to $800 a ton, like that's sort of hard for me to fathom. Like, Is that expensive? Well, okay, so the average American is responsible for around 17 tons of carbon dioxide a year. And so if it costs $600 to capture a ton of CO2, that would mean it would cost something like $10,000 to offset the yearly emissions of just one single American. Really? Oh my gosh, $10,000. So, you know, you could buy a car every year. A, a, a very affordable car, yes. <laughs> yeah. A used car for sure. <laughs> so yeah, $10,000 to offset the yearly emissions of just one American. And, you know, a European is slightly lower, but it'd still be about $6,000 a year. Okay, so that makes sense why people are so reluctant to invest in it, you know, because it's a, it's a losing investment. So why would anybody do it? You know, the ones who are doing it, why are they doing it at all? Well, I guess with the belief that it will come down in cost. But that is the main hit against air capture, that it's so expensive. And some people say that it will always be expensive. But as Miles Allen points out... Yes, it is expensive. But then people were making similar arguments against solar and wind 20 years ago, and costs have come down far beyond any expectations in both of those technologies, particularly on solar. Photovoltaic electricity right now is about 100 times cheaper than it was in 1960 or so. And windmills got 40 times cheaper. So, you know, I think that argument that it's expensive now, so it'll always be unaffordable, has been shown to be wrong so many times that I, I don't understand why it's still made. I mean, to me, it seems kind of strange to be talking about costs, since what we're really talking about is the, the price of saving the world that we live on, the, the thing that we all depend on. Yeah, like if you're in the emergency room, uh, the doctor isn't asking about your health insurance because it's about the you know fundamental saving of the life. Yeah, you're not too worried about maxing out your credit cards at that point, are you? Yeah. But even here, money counts, because it seems collectively we just don't want dealing with climate change to require us to make big sacrifices in the way we lead our lives. And maybe that's partly the reason why this issue has become so politicized. I always felt if somebody could stand up and says, for $5 a ton of CO2, this problem is fixed, we would have stopped arguing a long time ago. If somebody tells you it's $1,000 a ton of CO2 and that's all you can do, then climate change will remain a hoax forever. Unfortunately, as Klaus says, though, the reality is somewhere in between. And remember, it's very early days with carbon capture, but we're counting on these technologies to be able to pull down billions of tons of CO2 in just a few decades from now. But we won't achieve that unless we start now. We've got to start the R&D and the investment now if we hope to yield uh, the, the fruits, you know, in, in 30 years, 40 years time. First thing that comes to mind when I hear that is that, you know, try to question people ask at the beginning of conferences, when's the best time to plant a tree? <laughs> and which I think is quite fitting here, where, you know, we should have been doing things to, to get CO2 out of the, the atmosphere, like 20 years ago, and the second best time is now. And so, like, if we don't start now, then it's all over. Yeah. So then the, the question becomes, how do we get around this dilemma, right? That it's super expensive now, but we need to invest in it today, even though it's not that attractive to invest in. 
so that we can actually get these technologies to the point that they need to get to. And that's what we're going to look at in our next episode, how air capture can overcome this financial roadblock that it's currently stuck in. And we're also going to deal with the not insignificant question of what exactly are we going to do with these billions of tons of CO2 that we will hopefully be taking out of the atmosphere each year. So I hope you will join us next episode. We will see you in one week's time. This series of episodes was made possible thanks to funding from Climate Kick. Climate Kick is a European knowledge and innovation community that's working towards a prosperous, inclusive, and carbon neutral society. Stopping global temperatures from rising more than two degrees requires unprecedented changes. It requires new social dynamics, new ways of doing business, and new ways of living. While no one organization can tackle climate change alone, Climate Cake helps catalyze the rapid innovation needed across society by supporting climate-positive entrepreneurship, research, and education. It gathers the brightest minds together to help learn about and tackle climate challenges, and also provides mentoring and seed funding to the most promising climate-positive businesses. To learn more about the opportunities and resources that Climate Cake provides, and to see if one might be a fit for you, head to climate-kick.org. That's climate-kic.org. This episode was hosted and produced by myself, Kevin Kaners, and co-hosted by Tony Andrews. Additional production and story editing help came from Charlotta Lomas, Christina Peters, and Tony Andrews. The founding producer of The Elephant is Matthias Gutz, and The Elephant was first supported with funding from the Climate Kick Alumni Association. Special thanks to Dominic Hofstetter, Jakob Busman, and the entire Climate Cake community. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in one week's time.